listening to another in a series of podcasts on C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm William O'Flaherty from EssentialCSLewis.com, the producer of the show and one of the hosts. You can find other programs in this mini-series at NarniaCast.com. NarniaCast.com is your place to find all things related to broadcast on Narnia and is a feature partner site on the Middle Earth Network. Again, that's NarniaCast.com. Today's episode is on the fifth published Narnia story, The Horse and His Boy. If you have a copy of the book and notice a different number on it and aren't sure why, then be sure to listen to the first show where we talk about the original published order and the current one that is arranged somewhat chronologically. Joining me to discuss The Horse and His Boy is Dr. Crystal Hurd and Paul Martin. Welcome back, Crystal and Paul. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, the special guest for today is Dr. Charlie Starr. He teaches English, Humanities, and Film at Kentucky Christian University, and he is also the author of Light, C.S. Lewis's first and final short story, among other books. His website is simply charliewstar, and that's with two R's, dot com. And if you didn't catch that, don't worry, we'll mention it again later. Well, welcome to this special series of shows on Narnia, Charlie. Thank you, Willem. I am thrilled to be here and be thought of as a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and as a special guest, you get to kick off the first segment, and that is the story behind the story. And this segment, we're going to have our guests share useful or interesting background information. So, Charlie, considering the horse and his boy, what are some things maybe a person who either has read or plans to read might find interesting, uh, not about the story itself, but the writing process or some interesting trivia about it? Well, I remember the second or third time reading through the Chronicles of Narnia when I was much younger, noticing that in uh, The Silver Chair, Chapter 3, they uh, referenced, Lewis referenced uh, the horse and his boy and, and, and that entire story. And I remember thinking at that time how cool it was that Lewis had already thought about that story, and uh, and here we were just in the silver chair. And then I later learned uh, the uh, interesting fact that, well, he hadn't thought of the story while he was working on the silver chair. He had, in fact, written The Horse and His Boy before he wrote The Silver Chair. So while there's lots of argument over what order we should read the uh, Narnia books in, the uh, published order is uh, not quite even the order that he wrote them in. Uh, the Horse and His Boy was done after Prince Caspian, well, after the Dawn Treader, I should say, and then before the Silver Chair. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, I also found that he wasn't exactly sure what to title the book. And so he, uh, talking to his publisher, he said, well, we've got to make sure that it matches up with the Silver Chair. But in a letter written in uh, 1953 on April 13th to his publisher, he asks, uh, what are your reactions to any of the following? The Horse and the Boy, which might allure the pony book public, he says. Uh, the Desert Road to Narnia, Core of Archenland, Arkenland. The Horse Stole the Boy, Over the Border, The Horse Bree. And then he says, suggestions will be welcome. And then he goes on to talk about what kind of uh, inspiration Pauline Baines, the illustrator for the book, might look to in drawing pictures of the Calamines. And uh, he suggests, among other things, uh, the world of the Arabian Nights. Then he um, he wrote a letter in uh, a year later to Pauline Baines to tell her how much he actually did love her illustrations for the book and was very pleased with those. 
uh, he and the publisher both. Uh, he says, for example, both the drawings of Lazareline and her litter were a rich feast of lying and fantastic satiric imagination. My only regret was that we couldn't have both. Shasta among the tombs in the, in the new technique, which is lovely, was exactly what I wanted. The pictures of Rabidash hanging on the hook and just turning into an ass were the best comedy you've done yet. So he really did like Pauline Bain's illustrations. Uh, and then I found one other note, and that is that when he was writing to uh, an Ann Jenkins at Queen's University Belfast in uh, March of 1961 in summarizing uh, the Narnia books, he says the whole series works out like this, and then he goes on to talk about several of the books. And after mentioning Prince Caspian, then he, he says, so C.S. Lewis's entire summary of The Horse and His Boy is The Calling and Conversion of a Heathen. And there you go. Now it's time for the short summary segment in our show. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't read The Horse and His Boy, then you want to skip the next two to three minutes as Dr. Crystal Hurt will give us a short summary of the entire story. But before getting to that, uh, Crystal, give us a short summary of your website, how we get to it, and what some of the things that you have there. Sure. Thanks, William. Uh, my website is my name, Crystal Hurd. Dot com and it's C R Y S T A L H U R D. I do a lot of uh, posts on uh, the three L's. I call the three L's: life, leadership, and Lewis. Um, sort of uh, weave together different strands of, of of life that we encounter, and a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom that Lewis has given. I also do a lot of book reviews. Uh, on there and um, just different interesting pieces and I'm working uh, right now on one with on Lewis and women so I like to do different uh, series and try different things and now on to our short summary for Horse and His Boy um, if you have not read Horse and His Boy you've been warned by William uh, to try to fast forward over the next two or three minutes here so I don't spoil anything for you so basically, The Horse and His Boy is a very unique and interesting book. At the beginning, uh, we meet Shasta, an orphan boy who's raised by Arshish. He's a grumpy Calamine fisherman. Shasta overhears Arshish planning to sell him to a Calamine aristocrat. Um, and Shasta is surprised uh, when the aristocrat's horse, named Bree, begins to speak with him. Uh, Shasta and Bree decide to escape to Narnia and to the north together. And so they wait till everyone's asleep in the house, and they sneak off. While traveling, they meet Erebus, who's a young girl who's escaping also, a marriage arranged by her father, along with her talking horse, Wen. Um, so to escape to the north and to freedom, the pairs must pass through the capital of Tashban. Um, although they attempt to disguise themselves, Shasta is mistaken for the Arkenland Prince Corin and is rushed to the presence of three Narnian monarchs, uh, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. Peter is fighting giants in the north. Shasta overhears that Susan has been promised in marriage to Sisrock's son, Rabidash. However, she doesn't want to marry him, so they have to plan an escape uh, on their ship for the evening. So, meanwhile, Erebus is spotted by her friend, um, who assists her by not revealing her identity. Well, the two later attempt escape, but are cornered in the old palace, and they hide behind a couch, where they overhear uh, Tisrock 
Rabidash, and the Grand Visor planning an attack on Narnia. And by the way, the Grand Visor is the original betrothed man uh, that Erebus was running away from, who she was supposed to marry. Corrin finally returns, the boy he, that Shasta was confused for, uh, but Shasta takes off. Uh, so he escapes to the rendezvous point uh, that he and Erebus chose, which is in the ancient tombs of the desert. So finally reunited, the four continue across the desert to warn King Loon about Rabidash's plan to conquer Narnia. The four finally reach the hut of the Hermit of the Southern March. Erebus, who's been wounded by a lion we later understand is Aslan, uh, and the two horses are given rest, while Shasta continues to deliver the warning, and he goes on his own uh, to deliver that. Uh, King Loon is prepared, and ultimately they defeat Rabidash's army. Rabidash refuses to accept mercy, uh, from from the opposing army, so Aslan turns him into a donkey. It's later revealed that Shasta, his original name was Kor, and Corin, the boy he was confused for, are actually twins. So Shasta, the poor orphan boy, turns out to be a prince. Uh, in the end, peace is restored, and Erebus will eventually marry Shasta, and to quote Lewis here, to make their quarrels more convenient. And that is the horse and his boy. It's time now for the favorite characters segment of the show. Paul Martin will be leading this segment. But before he does, Paul, go ahead and describe your website, NarniaFans.com. All right. Uh, NarniaFans.com is a place for all fans to come together and to learn about the uh, films uh, that they've created about the Chronicles of Narnia, as well as any news on any upcoming films that may be in production. Uh, with the Chronicles, and to dig a little deeper behind the characters in the stories, as well as any music that was inspired by uh, the the, bo- the books or the movies that artists have created, down to very uh, like artists that you may never have heard of before. And we'll just take it right into our favorite characters from The Horse and His Boy, and maybe a little bit about why they're your favorite, or maybe why you just happen to pick them. We'll start with uh, Dr. Charlie Starr, maybe one or two characters that you that you love the most. Well, I, I suggested um, in my own notes that I wrote down, uh, first of all, Bree, because his pride is so much like our own. Uh, we, we think so much of ourselves till we truly meet someone better and, if honest, learn something of our own limitations. And then I thought about Shasta because his self-pity is so Mm -hmm. much like our own. We constantly feel picked on, constantly feel the unfairness of the world, constantly feel the victim. And only some of us truly learn to see how blessed we are and how wrong we were to waste time feeling sorry for ourselves. And then I thought about when, because her absolute faith in Aslan, her humility, her goodness are so unlike our own. She's just wonderful, and if Narnia has its saints, she must certainly be among them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, we'll go right to you, Dr. Crystal Hurd. Uh, I think I have to agree with Charlie. My favorite, uh, one of my favorites is Bree. He is enthusiastic. Um, he is the leader, really, um, in the beginning, sort of showing Shasta, you know, how to ride a horse, and it's very interesting, he's sort of leading the boy. Um, you sort of have a reversal there um, of domesticating the boy <laughs> instead of the animal. Um, I also really like, really like Erebus. 
she reminds me, I think sometimes of myself, uh, you know, when we first meet her, she's wearing her brother's armor, you know, and she's, she's trying to come off, you know, as a boy, she has all these, this armor on and, and sort of like she, you know, becomes, she softens, you know, when she befriends uh, Shasta and Bree and, and, and she sort of realizes that, you know, she can open up to, to people and, and let love in, you know, it's a, it's really interesting. So I kind of like her too. She, um, she's feisty. <laughs> I think it's one of the things I like about her. And let's go right to William O'Flaherty, your favorite characters. Well, as maybe no surprise with four main characters, we're kind of going to have overlap here in terms of what the favorite ones would be. For me, um, with Charlie in terms of the uh, Shasta and, and Bree, uh, noting some of the same characteristics. Now, in picking the uh, favorite characters, I haven't always done this with the shows that we've done. I stuck with what, what my first impression was back when I did read it about 30 years ago. And uh, and that was they stood out mainly because I was you know I'm obviously a, a male now of course I'm I'm not a horse that's quite clear but in terms of the uh, take charge Bree that's kind of a quality that you envy of course as Charlie was noting and we're going to be talking about I'm sure with the uh, discussion portion about that confidence kind of has it really crosses a line to where he's got more pride. Confidence is good, but then when you're overly confident, then you really have the pride. And so uh, I enjoyed him, but didn't like all the uh, the pride stuff all the time. But then the lesson that, that he learned really uh, spoke to me as well. And, of course, with Shasta, who, you know, as the story opens, is, um, is, is someone that is just seems to be a, a common boy. But yet he goes through this adventure. You know, he's a favorite character because of that. And then, you know, the lessons that, that he learns, uh, you know, spoke to me. And then who doesn't dream of being discovered as some long-lost uh, heir to a throne? I'm going to have to, uh, for my choices, kind of agree with uh, everybody else, with both Bree and uh, Shasta. And uh, I'm surprised that no one really mentioned that Bree is actually uh, short for... A uh, much longer name, probably one of the strangest names in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, yeah, once re- go ahead and pronounce that for us. Yeah, I, I, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Paul. That, that's why I didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> it's Brihi Hini Brini Huhi Ha. So that would be the long form of Bree's name. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have to agree with with everything you guys have said. You've summed it up very well, and I also like um, like William. I, being a young man, I, I related with, like really closely with Shasta, kind of being an outsider um, and kind of feeling the weight of the world. And I had to like I had to feel that there's not there's there's kind of a passing reference to a bit of a. Um, Aladdin or, you know, the, uh, the Arabian Nights, um, as well as, uh, the Prince and the Pauper, uh, came to mind when I was reading these, the story of, uh, Corb and I have to, uh, I have to think that C.S. Lewis maybe had those, uh, stories in mind when he was writing it as well, but those characters definitely stuck out to me as, as favorites and having a talking horse, you, you can't go wrong with that. It, 
It's now time for the segment we call Unique to This Story. And Dr. Starr, our guest, uh, he's going to be sharing about that and the unique aspects within the story itself, uh, elements that are only seen in this story, whether it might be a character or setting or something otherwise that is maybe more fully developed here than any other story. But before you do that, Charlie, uh, go ahead and, and tell us and spell out to make sure people can get to your website. This will all be in the show notes, but tell us about your website first. Well, again, it is charliewstar.com. Charlie is with an I-E, and star has two R's, and it's all one word. And uh, at my website, you can learn all kinds of wonderful things about uh, C.S. Lewis, for example. I have a large C.S. Lewis section, uh, which was entirely student-created, uh, by students in my C.S. Lewis class, and it has all kinds of wonderful resources, including some really well-written essays, uh, not just by me, but by my students as well, some really sharp kids there. So there's a good uh, C.S. Lewis section. You can also learn some things about my books, read some of my short fiction, have a few essays here and there, my dissertation on C.S. Lewis's epistemology, uh, and even some of the uh, movies that I have made with my film class are linked uh, through the website. So Star Wars fans out there, for example, might want to check out our Star Wars fan film, Sacrifices, which was just a blast to make, uh, and some other good resources that people might enjoy. Well, I think the first thing that's unique about The Horse and His Boy is the very title itself, and it's really easy to miss the humor of the title. A book like this should normally be titled something like The Boy and His Horse, and people would very much expect uh, then what kind of story it's going to be. But no, here we have a story called The Horse and His Boy, and uh, clearly some roles have been reversed, and it's uh, rather tongue-in-cheek, I think, and, and, a, and a wonderful title. Uh, also unique, then, is the location uh, of the story. Uh, this is a Narnia book that doesn't take place in Narnia, though some of the other stories um, don't necessarily take place in Narnia. For example, if you think about it, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, nevertheless, there's a real otherness to the horse and his boy, uh, to the location, the culture in which Shasta finds himself, in which we find ourselves with him. Uh, and that sense of otherness, I think, contributes more than with any of the other books to a sense of feeling really lost. Uh, as we enter into this story, we don't quite know where we are. We don't quite know what's going on. Uh, and in that sense, we are very much like Shasta. And, but I think that's part of the uniqueness of this book. Also, there's an apparent lack of magic uh, in this book, a, a kind of lack of fairy tale sensibility at all. It's much more like a child adventure story than a child fantasy story. Now, it is true we do have talking horses, but for the most part, um, this book, especially compared to the, the other Narnia books, has more of a sense of realism than a sense of the fairy tale. And something then that's very different in this book as compared to the others is a lack of a clearly stated quest. In the other books especially the earlier ones, if we decide to read The Horse and His Boy in its original published order. The other books have a clearly stated quest that you figure out fairly early on, not necessarily right at the beginning, but you learn quickly enough in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that the four children need to get to Care Paravel, and uh, Aslan is on the move, and the, and the witch needs to be destroyed. We learn pretty quickly 
that uh, Caspian needs to be put on the throne, uh, that in the Dawn Treader we're looking for the seven lost lords, and the silver chair we have to ris- rescue Prince Rillian. Uh, but in The Horse and His Boy, you really don't learn what the quest was until the book's over, uh, until it's uh, practically at its end. And in my mind, all of these qualities, then especially that lack of a clearly stated quest, that sense of otherness uh, of the terrain, of the setting, contribute to what I think is the main theme of the book. Those are very good points, uh, Charlie. I know a couple things that uh, I've gleaned from, from others to uh, underscore as, as well as that this story takes place during the events of A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so it's a story within that story, so to speak. Previously, we noted when Charlie wasn't a guest that if you were to try to read things in order of the events, you would have to stop reading before the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, read this story, and then finish that. But we've been advocating the vacation order. The other aspects about the horse and his boy that is unique to this story is that it's the only story where no one is pulled in from the outside of Narnia. Because, like I uh, was just noting, that this is a story within the, uh, the timeline of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The uh, children are already there. And now it's time for the part in the show where it's called General Discussion. And, of course, we're not even hoping to uh, obviously cover the entire book. Uh, but again, we want to kind of get your interest going in terms of rereading the book or reading it if you haven't for The Horse and His Boy. Uh, kicking it off here, uh, Charlie, you mentioned this uh, earlier about the fact that you know this doesn't take place in Narnia directly. And you know, let's discuss or have you address the issue of you know why write a Narnia book which doesn't take place in Narnia? Yeah, boy, that's a really good question. Uh, I think one reason is because it allows Lewis to expand his mythic world, uh, to move beyond the borders of Narnia and look at this world uh, in a larger sense, to add to that world, to follow Tolkien's idea of sub-creation and and really filling that world with as much of his own imaginative creativity uh, as Lewis can. He does this in not just this book, but in several others, whereas The Horse and His Boy takes us south of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader takes us east of Narnia, The Silver Chair takes us north, and The Last Battle takes us into the west. So Lewis is able to expand his world and participate in that act of sub-creation, which his friend Tolkien um, promoted and which Lewis, I think, firmly believed in. I think also, again, it has to do with this idea of making us feel a little bit lost, uh, and that, once again, goes to what I think is the main theme of the story. Uh, an additional thing um, I want to add regarding this question is that this, to me, underscores the brilliance of uh, C.S. Lewis. Not that other things haven't, but this just adds to that brilliance that, uh, in, in, in one sense, he takes a, a risk in writing such different stories within Narnia. That's kind of a double-edged sword. There there may be some readers that, well, because the four Pevensey children aren't in all the stories all the time, then it's not as interesting. But uh, I think that, that to show such a skill that Lewis had by doing that. 
And I'd like to just uh, point out there is a there is a time in it. I mean, the book is part of the Chronicles of Narnia, and um, I mean it's obvious, but there is a time when in the book Shasta does ride for Narnia. Um, he heads he heads towards Narnia to uh, warn Narnians of a of a secret plot, and in that it does actually enter Narnia for uh, kind of a short time. It may be like a few pages or so, um, but. Narnia does play a, a pretty substantial role in the story, which uh, it's sometimes overlooked when you remember like just all of the action and adventure that happens in the desert and out in um, the other lands, uh, uh, in Arkenland. And most people that I talk to just, like, for whatever reason, it's forgotten that Narnia even appears in the book. Um, I, just was, I just thought I'd point that out real quick. Now, given Lewis's fascination with all things northern, do you believe that the phrase to Narnia and to the north, which is used frequently in The Horse and His Boy to motivate the characters to action, may also be a reference to his uh, adoration for northern culture and mythology? Well, that certainly makes sense. Um, it's hard to you know, read the mind of the author if he doesn't just outright tell you, uh, yes, this is what I was going for. But it, it seems to me that Narnia and the North is much like the kind of thing you get in The Lord of the Rings uh, in emphasizing uh, the West and the free peoples of the West, uh, and that being kind of uh, the golden place. Uh, Lewis doesn't just stay with uh, the North, though he certainly does in this book, but in the Dawn Treader, the East also then becomes very important to him. Uh, beyond that, I'm not exactly sure what his motivations were, but he, he sure was in love with northernness, wasn't he? Yes, and indeed he was. Now, uh, Crystal, this actually was uh, your question, so I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts about that. Sure. Um, I actually um, I don't know if you all have ever seen uh, the Pauline Baines illustration map that she actually drew for the Narnia series, but um, I have a, I, I just bought it off eBay. I have a, a copy of it, and uh if you look at it, you know, the very top is Aslan's table. And um, so, yeah, he was, he talks quite frequently, you know, if you've read his correspondence, especially with Arthur Greaves, when he was kindling his friendship with Arthur Greaves, that was something that they shared was this love of Northern culture and Northern myth and Odin and, uh, you know, all, you know, all that stuff just fascinated him. So um, I was just curious to see what um, some other people had thought about his fact that, you know, to Narnia to the North was said very frequently throughout this book. And uh, Charlie, you're right. He does he does a great job expanding boundaries and, and sub-creating in his world of Narnia. But I just thought that was a neat sort of um, tip of the hat, you know, to his own personal preference of northernness. Now, one of the things in terms of the story is that the um, many great themes or uh, aspects that you can kind of pull out. One is about Aslan telling Shasta and Erebus each in uh, different chapters that he only will tell them about their own story. And that when he does this, they will ask about someone else. But then his reply is that he's not going to tell someone else's story to them. Um, how can this be applied in our life as well as just... Um, what are your thoughts about that aspect uh, in the story, Charlie? Well, that's a really, really good question. And a, and a wise teacher at this point, in order to continue to make himself look very intelligent, is going to say, 
what do you all think about this? But I won't pull a cheap trick and force you all to answer. Um, what can I answer? And I, and I struggled with this question with my students just a month ago as we were working through the, the Narnia books. I think in part it might have to do with the worry uh, and worrying too much about um, how God operates in the world. Well, what about this and what about that? Uh, focus on your relationship with God. Focus on your story. And don't be concerned about how the stories of others turn out. Uh, I, I'm convinced there's something deeper going on there, and I think I get these flashes where I almost get a handle on it, but uh, but then I sort of lose it, and I say to my students, so what do you all think? And that's where I'll leave that. And, uh, yeah, I was having similar thoughts about this particular question, and for those who are wondering where he uh, does say this in the story, even if you've uh, read it, it's sometimes hard to remember the exact spot, but... Uh, Aslan says, I tell no one any story but his own in chapter 11 to uh, Shasta and then to uh, Erebus. He says, no one is told any story but their own. So I, yeah, I think this definitely does have uh, strong implications uh, in our own lives. I know for, for myself, I try to look at that aspect and to realize it. Just as though with uh, any number of things, sometimes it's easier to like see other people's faults and like where they need to improve, uh, but we need to, you know, limit and see, okay, what is God doing, you know, within my own life? And yeah, I don't maybe understand why he's doing this or that within their life, whether it's blessing them or they're going through a hard time. Uh, my challenge is, is to figure out what he's doing in my life and to be an encouragement, uh, if I can, to other people around me. I wonder if, in part, he Lewis might be saying, and, and this is a theme that I think he develops elsewhere, uh, something on the lines that, you know, if you if you could know the other stories and, and how God works uh, in those lives in particular, you might be tempted to want to try to figure God out. And one thing that God never allows is for us to know about him. If you want to know God, you've got to know him. But as far as the theoretical is concerned, he's just not interested. You want to know me, know me. But I'm not going to let you just know about me. And it's the story then that we work out in our relationship with the Lord that allows us to understand him the best. I don't know if that's what Lewis intended, but I just, I wonder if that might be part of it. Hmm. I just had a thought along the same lines that perhaps it's that if we know other people's stories, their story isn't necessarily important to get us to our goal. Their story is important to get them to their goal. But our goal has to be gotten through the way that he has laid out for us. So if we knew everyone else's story first, it may hurt us in our journey because we wouldn't, we wouldn't learn what we need to learn individually ourselves. Um, because we'd be looking at ourselves through a lens of their life and thinking, well, maybe their life is better than ours or maybe their life is worse than ours. But then we're not focused on where we are in where we can improve. We're focused on where they are and where we might be comparing ourselves to them instead of focusing on what's the important thing, which is getting ourselves to being where he wants us to be in our lives. And that that's in cutting out what, um, what other people's lives are and focusing on ourselves isn't necessarily um, wrong to do because 
we need to focus on ourselves because in doing that, we'll be able to help others because that is the real, um, the real goal um, is to be able to uh, help others in community, but also to help ourselves. And if we forget about ourselves um, for too long, then we won't be able to help others anymore. And I just kind of rambled a bit, but I think I, I got the point across. Yeah, I, I, I agree with both of um both Charlie and Paul, um, I think um, sometimes we can attempt to live vicariously through other people. We can we can be so caught up in other people's story that we forget that we're we're in our own story and we're we're taking our own journey. So I think um, what Aslan says is full of wisdom. I think at any age um, of your life, it's it's about sort of understanding yourself as an individual and knowing. Um, that you have a particular path and that you can be sidetracked from, you know, in other people's journey uh, when you are really destined to take your own. The uh, next aspect I want to try to tackle here is Lewis says the following, uh, or has a character, Wynne, say to Aslan, please, she said, you're so beautiful, you may eat me if you like, I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Um, what's the uh, meaning behind this passage, you think, Charlie? Lewis frequently talks about the idea of love as either consuming or as consummation. His favorite gospel was John's gospel, and I think in part he's referencing the Last Supper, but he's also referencing the sort of very mysterious, mystical things that Jesus talked about in those key chapters, I think chapter 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John, at the Last Supper, when he's talking about how how he is in the Father, and he wants the disciples to be in the Father, the Father in them as the Father is in him. He is in part talking about that uh, life of Christ, uh, the Zoe of Christ, which is in which he talks about in Beyond Personality, or, or Book 4 of Mere Christianity, where uh, we somehow will participate in the same super-personal life that, uh, that God participates in, in the form of the Trinity. And this uh, weaving in and out of each other, this uh, consuming and being consumed by, is very much a part of what the Last Supper, what communion is, when I participate in communion, I, I eat the body of Christ, I drink his blood, I consume him, and in so doing, and consumed by him, I become a little version of him, a little Christ, which is what Christian means, and this is ultimately what Lewis says is our great goal. Uh, but a big chunk then of what uh, Wynne is feeling here is she's feeling utter joy in the presence of Aslan. She recognizes that he is the fulfillment of all her desires. And uh, so there would be no problem for her to be utterly consumed in him. Lewis then also talks about this until we have faces and in the four loves. Um, there are echoes of the idea of Song of Solomon chapter 8 and of Hebrews 12. In Song of Solomon, love is a consuming fire. And in Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. The, the very nature of love is one that consumes without destroying uh, when it is, of course, good love, when it's uh, a love that has been twisted and, and is dark, as, as Lewis talks about 
in the example of the infernal Venus in the four loves or in the person of uh, Ungit until we have faces, uh, that love consumes, it eats to destroy. But uh, the good love, the, the love that Psyche, for example, will experience until we have faces, the marriage to the brute is, is both a marriage and an eating, and it, and, and it involves a kind of death. Uh, but what's interesting is that is that whether love consumes in a negative or is a consummation in a positive, there is always some sort of consuming going on. And he recognizes that, I think, in this just this one tiny little line that Wynn speaks, which I think is the most remarkable line in the entire book. That's the beauty in Lewis's uh, writing is that maybe even just a short passage has such a uh, rich uh, underlying meaning and as we've noted in other um, uh, podcasts, that you know, Lewis didn't set out to say, "Okay, because of this Christian idea, I want to be sure to insert this." He was just so well versed in the Bible that when he created these stories, he was able to weave these different aspects uh, in them. The only thing that I would add, I mean, Lewis does such a great job at showing the duality of Aslan, and you know, sort of the duality of God, the the love and the fear simultaneously like you're so beautiful please you know you know what to do whatever you need to do but um I, you know i see that like in the book um you know earlier he scratches erephus's back um as the punishment that her you know that her slave girl took for you know because she basically had her slave girl oversleep so she could escape and so her slave girl is lashed um as punishment and so Erebus receives that punishment on her back. But then, uh, towards the end of Horse and His Boy, Aslan holds out his paw and he says, Look, you know, my pads are velvet. I can hug you and I can hurt you, you know. Um, so it's a very interesting dichotomy. Well, now, there are many themes within the Horse and His Boy. We're going to touch on two more. The, the first one here is the, the theme that stands out regarding pride or vanity. Lewis himself admitted that this was something that he had difficulty with. In fact, that's why in, in, in many different stories, uh, this one is, as well, that I think he's able to really speak to it because he he's, was quite aware of how he struggled with it and he was able to put some of those things uh, within uh, the, the various characters. But here in The Horse and His Boy specifically, uh, three characters that have a problem with it is Bree, Erevis, and Rabadash. Let's explore maybe briefly about how each of them deal with this besetting sin and then what kind of things we can learn from that, Charlie. Well, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to how each one of them deals with uh, pride per se. I I suppose you could almost argue that that none of them really deal with pride. It's Aslan who deals with their pride. But uh, I was was always fascinated just to read Lewis saying that, that pride is the worst of the sins. Uh, I think in the church we often get caught up with the uh, with the more obvious kinds of sins. Uh, you know, the real sins are the things that we can't talk about except in hush, hushed voices. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, these are the really bad things. When you look at the example of Christ, however, he seems to spend most of his time condemning self-righteousness, uh, which is a form of pride, uh, while he's off having uh, dinner with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. The only thing then I, I would... Uh, add to the discussion about the the specific characters and how they deal with their pride is very vague and it's really only a sensibility but it seems to me that Lewis does a very good job of capturing 
masculine pride in the characters of Bree and Rabidash and feminine pride in the character of Erebus. And I couldn't even label it and say this is how he does that and this is what masculine pride is and what feminine pride is. I just get this uh, sort of experiential sense that he that they are different in the characters and that he captures that. And, and maybe the others then can tell me what I think I mean. Well, now, I, I know for me, one of the things that, that stands out is because he does have three characters that deal with this, two obviously deal with it much better than the third one. Um, as And even the two, uh, Bree and Erebus, besides being male and, and, and female, we, we do see that, you know, how the Lord may work in our lives regarding whatever aspect or character that needs to be improved or, or tweaked. He's going to deal with it unique to the individual. And so I think that's a, a key thing. Uh, the only other aspect, although there, there's a lot of things that we could probably talk about, but time won't permit, and that is for the one that doesn't, um, um, Rabadash, is that he is similar to some characters that we'll uh, talk about when we get to the last book, the last battle. There are the uh, ones that will not be taken in. They are just so stubborn that they aren't open to any other possibility. So when I was reviewing the book, I thought about the characters uh, in the last battle who just refused to see what was plain to others, but um, he just didn't give the uh, the uh, time of day to uh, hear what the others were saying here in, in this story. I, I always considered pride to be the worst of all sins because it kind of leads to all sin. Like when we think we're better than to sin, then we kind of can fall right into the traps that we that we think that we're better than. I guess um, as long as we maintain humility, uh, we can we can avoid avoid that. Um, but that's all I have. <laughs> An additional thing would be uh, something that was noted actually before to kind of tie in, and that is that you know Bree appears to, at least to me he appeared like just this very good confident uh, character. And that it's good to be, to, to be confident, but then he, you know, he crosses that line to where it's really pride that, that drives him. And then the contrast would be uh, when that uh, Charlie was noting her humility and how that is a um, very good you know, contrast. It's the opposite, obviously, uh, of pride. One final question, then, is an uh, aspect dealing with the uh, theme, and that is of uh, providence that is dealt with in The Horse and His Boy. Charlie, uh, what do you glean from uh, this theme? Well, I, I think the theme of providence is the strongest argument for reading The Horse and His Boy in its original published order, which is fifth, because it is so very other than the other books. This otherness that I talked about at the beginning of our discussion and that sense of being lost in this world uh, that occurs at that time and also the sense that it's the least like uh, a fairy tale as compared to the others – really stands out because I wait to read this book fifth. What's especially important, uh, again, something I said before, is the fact that the other four books, the first four in, in terms of order of publication, are quest stories, and the quests are pretty straightforward at the beginning. We don't learn about the quest of Shasta until near the end of the book, and we also don't learn in what way Aslan has been in control and in charge and taking care of things until the end of the book. What, what I love about The Horse and His Boy is it is a Ruth story. And the Ruth story, The Horse and His Boy, 
the biblical book of Ruth, these are stories about life as we experience them on kind of a daily basis, uh, as, as we experience things on a daily basis. We don't exactly know how God is working necessarily, but the point is he is working. We, we don't always get Cecil B. DeMille-style miracles, and yet God is there. Uh, the whole book of Ruth, uh, in one sense, doesn't make any sense. Uh, why is it there? What's it doing? What's its purpose? And you really only learn what that purpose is when you get down to the last two or three verses of the book. And, and you learn that she is, is David's, what is it, grand, great-grandmother, I think. And so you suddenly realize God has been at work in Ruth's life all along, even if you haven't seen the miracles that make that happen. Well, that's exactly what you get then in The Horse and His Boy, and that's what you, exactly what you tend to get in the life of most Christians. Uh, not the big, bombastic, uh, miraculous things, uh, but the control of a God who is there and working things out the way he wants them to work out for our benefit. He is working all things for the benefit of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans 8. And the horse and his boy is just a perfect mirror of that. When you get to the end of the story, you suddenly go, oh, that's why all this happened like this. Uh, and it's just a perfect working out of that theme of providence. And uh, I recall that within the story, when some of the characters try to pass some things off as, as luck, uh, Erevis does where she talks about, it says it was luck that the lion did not wound her more seriously. The, the hermit in the story corrects her and notes that it's more of um, providence. In fact, uh, looking at the uh, companion to uh, Narnia, a book by Paul Ford, he uh, notes that when Cor reflects that, Aslan, quote, quoting here, The Horse and His Boy Now, seems to be at the back of all the stories, close quote. Uh, Paul Ford says, this is a summary statement of Lewis's theology of uh, providence, and that is uh, how Aslan, and I'm still quoting Paul Ford's book, how Aslan takes care of all the Narnian history and the lives of each person and animal uh, is one of the major themes of the Chronicles uh, themselves. I just wanted to mention that... Um what Charlie says is, is with Providence, I, I see that especially in the scene uh, where Shasta's out in the desert by himself. You know, Shasta's waiting in the tombs, you know, uh, and he's scared. And, uh, you know, he's basically protected by Aslan. He doesn't know that it's Aslan. Um, but later on he says, you know, I was with you in the boat, you know, at the very beginning. You know, when you were an infant, I was with you in the desert. Um, and so, um, Charlie, it's spot on. It's like, I've been here the whole time. I've been present the whole time. You just didn't recognize me. You know, so it's a great lesson, especially desert because deserts are so symbolic. Um, and I think we all, even in our Christian walks have those dry spells or, you know, seasons of doubt or, you know, seasons of disillusionment with God. And, you know, and it's like, well, I'm still here, you know, when, when you're in the deserts of your faith. I'm still here. So it's a really neat scene. And I'm really glad Lewis put that in and, and sort of weaves it into his whole theme of providence. And that was the end of our discussion of the horse and his boy. As previously noted, we didn't hope to talk about all aspects of the book, and I'm sure there is more that could be said about the parts we did discuss. We hope that with what you've heard, you'd be encouraged to read or reread the story. Because as with all of the Narnia stories, they become even more enjoyable with repeated readings. If you haven't already, 
Don't forget to check out the other shows in this mini-series by visiting NarniaCast.com. If you are listening as the programs are being released, there are just two remaining, with The Magician's Nephew up next. Again, the site is NarniaCast.com. I'm William O'Flaherty, and another site that you will want to consider visiting if you want to learn more about C.S. Lewis in general is EssentialCSLewis.com. I've been doing a series of articles about his life by looking at what happened in it over the years for a particular month. Plus, there are other interviews I've done with various authors who have books out on Lewis, and I also provide a daily quiz, quote, and fact on Lewis. And so now let me thank uh, my co-host for the show, Dr. Crystal Hurd, whose website is simply crystalhurd.com. Thanks for being with us today, Crystal. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And then, of course, Paul Martin from NarniaFans.com. We thank you for joining us for this chat about the horse and his boy. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, and I, I love doing this show. And, of course, our special guest has been Dr. Charlie Starr. He teaches English, Humanities, and Film at Kentucky Christian University. He's the author of a book simply called Light. The subtitle is C.S. Lewis's First and Final Story. You can hear an interview I did with him when you visit EssentialCSLewis.com. And speaking of websites, uh, Charlie's site again is Charlie W. Star. That's with two R's at the end. Thanks, Charlie, for uh, being with us on the show today. Uh, and thank you, William. And William, I just want to thank you for the, the work that you're doing to uh, share such really good information about C.S. Lewis uh, through your podcasts. I think it's a great ministry, and I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thank you, Charlie. 